Okay, this evening we continue our studies in the uh, New Testament letter of Galatians, so let me encourage you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. I believe we're going to look in particular tonight at verses 17 through 21, but I really want to begin reading at verse 15 through to the end of the chapter. I think one thing that will be helpful to keep in mind as we read this particular passage is that Peter is continuing a conversation face-to-face with Peter, whom he is confronting. This, these words are a continuation of Paul's words to Peter, speaking to him face-to-face. Hear the word of the true and living God, Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, or Christ died in vain. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's Ask God's blessing upon the ministry of his word. Would you pray with me as I lead us? And please pray for me. Oh, Holy Father, as we bow in your presence tonight, and we come once again to this threshold of the ministry of your word, I pray and ask, O oh Father, that you would be pleased to grant upon everyone alike <clears throat> copious measures of your spirit. Father, we ask that you would come in your power and authority. And Father, that you would rest upon each, giving bread to uh, the either and seed to the sower, that your word may go forth and accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it, that it may not return to you void. And so have mercy upon us all tonight. And Father, I pray that you would minister your word to the hearts of these, your precious people, to strengthen them in their faith and to bring more honor and glory to your Son 
in whose blessed name we do pray. Amen. Please remember that these verses are a part of Paul's continuation of this overall argument wherein he is defending the truth of his apostolic commission and gospel. And he is doing so because these Galatians had become confused in their faith due to the influence of the Judaizers. And when this dispute finally comes to a head, which later it will, at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, where they claimed, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Thus Paul exerts his energy here in Galatians chapters 1 and 2 to defend the divinely revealed gospel that he preached beginning with verse 11 of chapter 1. But I make known to you, brethren, that gospel, he says, which was preached to you by me, he said, it is not according to man. He says, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. He says, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it is in these verses that Paul exposes the heart of the contrary controversy in which he is engaged to show that these men who were disturbing and disrupting uh, the faith of the Galatians, that they had set themselves in direct opposition to Christ himself and the gospel which he had revealed to the apostle. And Paul is stressing that the gospel that he preached was not his own invention. It's not something that he conjured up within the confines of his own mind, that he made up and that he then passed on to other men. But he argues that God had given him this revelation personally. Thus, at the very beginning of the epistle, Paul sets before his readers this distinction between him and the Judaizers. And he urges them, in effect, to return to the gospel of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's basically asking them, will you side with Christ or will you continue to be bewitched or to be spooked? by those who have set themselves against Christ, denying the sufficiency of his person and work on behalf of sinners. And verses 15 through 21 are not the easiest verses to understand. And we find comfort for our labors or efforts tonight in the words of Peter in his second epistle, where he writes that some things in Paul's epistles are hard to understand. And if an inspired apostle found some of Paul's words hard to understand, then we can draw some comfort from that. And so he reminds Peter that we have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important because Peter in this context was playing the part of a hypocrite. He was separating himself from the Gentile believers and acting as though 
being a Jew, gave him this superiority, as it were, over the Gentile believers. And that is why Paul rises to the defense of the gospel in withdrawing his fellowship from his Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter's actions were, in, were implying, in effect, that justifying grace in Jesus Christ is not enough for fellowship. Now, I think this is what helps us to understand what Paul is saying, particularly in verse 17. There the apostle writes, But if we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found to be sinners. And he poses the question, Is Christ, therefore, a minister of sin? Now, what does that particular phrase mean? It, can it mean that Christ is the advocate of, advocate of sin? Surely not. Now the most common interpretation of verse 17 is this. If as justified men and women we sin and we do sin that cannot be denied as believers, who then is responsible for that sin? That's the issue that Paul is raising. Is Christ responsible? And we respond to that, by no means is Christ responsible. We ourselves are responsible for our sins. We must assume you and I the responsibility that we are the guilty ones. We cannot lay the blame upon Christ. Now this is a very basic truth. It's a very crucial truth that we ourselves bear the responsibility of, for our sins even as justified believers. And while this is true, I do not think it is the truth that is being taught in this particular passage here. Instead, this is the point I think that Paul is laboring to make in the course of his argument. And please try to follow me. It's not always easy, but try to follow me as carefully as you can. I think Paul's point that when such a one as Peter begins to deny the truth of justification by faith alone in separating from other believers... Peter was in essence saying by his actions that those who trusted in Christ alone for their justification before God were sinning. I think that's what Peter was implying by his actions. Now, why were they sinning? It was because they were not observing the Mosaic rites and rituals. By withdrawing and separating himself from these Gentile believers, Peter was saying in effect that their faith in Christ was not enough. And therefore, they were sinning by adding to his work, uh, not by not adding to his work, because they were not obeying these old covenant observances such as circumcision. And Paul is showing that if such a line of thought is then followed through to its conclusions, and this is what is concerned to hammer home with Peter. If you take that argument or that position all the way to its conclusion, then it makes Christ the advocate of sin and the promoter of sin. Because, and Peter was aware of this, make no mistake, 
We know, as Paul says in verse 16, we know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, but if while we seek to be justified in Christ or by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. That is, if we appear to be sinners, according to the thinking of these Judaizers over here, by not submitting to the Mosaic customs, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Is that what you're saying, Peter? That's how Paul is dealing with Peter in this, on this occasion. It could be that Paul is trying to help Peter to see where such thinking and where such actions lead. And Paul's answer to that is certainly not. Do you understand what Paul is doing here? He is demonstrating, he is showing to the Galatian believers, and this is the central point of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. He is demonstrating to these Galatians that those who seek to reconstruct what was destroyed, who return to the observance of the law in the belief that this is to complete the work of Christ, he says they are lawbreakers. In the sight of God. That Peter, not the Gentiles, was the real lawbreaker on this occasion. Peter was adding to the work of Christ. Look at verse 18. He says, basically, if I build again on those things which I destroyed, he says, I make myself, I turn myself into a transgressor. You see, this is what Peter, by his separatist actions, was doing. By his conduct, he was rebuilding the very thing that he had destroyed. He was reconstructing, he was rebuilding that middle wall of separation, as Paul calls it in Ephesians 2 and verse 14, that the gospel had torn down. And Peter was seeking to raise that wall once again. And so he was reconstructing what God in Christ had torn down. And Paul's response to that is, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, he says, I make myself a transgressor. Do you see how Paul is arguing that point before Peter? And dear people, I think this helps us in turn to see the seriousness of the so-called second blessing theology. Because no matter how well intended such folk may be in their concern for people to have a more meaningful walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, they end up by adding to the finished work of Christ. They too are effectively saying that God's justifying grace in Jesus Christ is not enough. That we're not complete in Christ. That we lack something of the fullness of the Christian faith. And this is for all intents and purposes that with which Paul is confronting Peter. Peter, Paul is arguing, you are the transgressor here. We will consider it 
uh, in more depth later in verse 21. But Paul informs Peter, he says, I am not setting aside, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, and I love this translation, then Christ died in vain. And he's saying in essence, Peter, let's consider that to which the implications of your behavior leads. Let's follow your behavior to its logical conclusions. And that conclusion is this. If righteousness is imparted by the law, then Christ has died in vain. His death is of no effect. By your conduct, Peter, you are in essence saying that Christ died for nothing. And your behavior, Peter, Paul is saying in essence, is an assault upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine an, an apostle being forced to confront another apostle with this particular uh, rebuke? Now, it is in this very context that the Apostle Paul then proceeds uh, to underscore the Christian's relationship to the law. Notice verse 19. He basically says, for through the law, he says, I died to the law that I might hope to live to God or that I might live to God. Now, this is where some folk, I think, go astray with respect to God's law. They begin to think that Paul is referring to the whole law that was given by God to Moses. But in so doing, they show that they do not understand the context of Paul's argument here. Paul is speaking in the context of the believer's salvation. That is, how our sins are forgiven and how we are put right with God in the gospel. And in verse 19, <clears throat> Paul seeks to explain here the relationship of the believer to the law in the context of salvation. And it is very simple. He says, for I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. And so what is Paul teaching here? It might be helpful to consider, first of all, what he is not teaching. He is not teaching us that the law of God no longer has any place in the Christian life. He is not teaching that. Such a thought does not even enter into the apostle's mind here. Indeed, it has nothing to do with his argument. He is not teaching us that the law of God no longer has any place in the Christian life. Consider how Paul speaks of the law, for example, in Romans chapter 7. He says, therefore, the law is holy. He says, the commandment is holy and just and good. Romans 7 verse 12, God's holy moral law is the believer's rule and guide for righteous living, for conduct. And when Paul declares then in verse 19 that he has died to the law, surely he does not mean for us to understand there that its duties and commands in terms of its moral requirements are no longer applicable. That's not what he means. He says as a Christian in Romans 7 verse 22, 
For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. He loved the law of God as a converted man. He saw it to be holy, righteous, and good. And so Paul is not teaching us here that the law in its moral precepts is no longer relevant to the believer. To be sure, Paul's arguments in Romans 7 and Romans 8 is really a fuller treatment of what he is saying in Galatians 2 and Galatians 3. In fact, the apostle informs us in Romans chapter 7 that one of the signs or one of the marks of of the law is that he continues to obey the moral law of God. He tells us in Romans 8 and verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God. Notice For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. That's Paul's argument. So this is in contrast to the unbeliever uh, who does not want to submit to God's moral law. So Paul is not teaching in Galatians 19 that by dying to the law, we're we're to understand him to mean by those words that the law is no longer a requirement for righteous living. What then does he mean? What he means is, is that he had died to the law's righteous standard as something that he himself or anyone else could ever keep. He had died to its condemning power. That's what he had died to. And if we go on to ask, when did this happen and how did it happen, then the answer is given to us in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, Paul says, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. I have died to the law in terms of it being viewed as a means of being right with God. I was condemned by it because I could never keep it or obey it perfectly. And so God has provided for us a way of salvation. When Paul says in verse 19, for through the law I died to the law that I might live to God, he goes on in the next verse to explain to it. And really verse 20 requires a sermon all of its own and I can't do it but tonight. But Paul's point in verse 20 is this. Because of our union with Christ, because of our union with Christ, In his death, in his resurrection, in his death and in his resurrection, we can now live to and for God. That's his argument. For the Christ who died and who died beneath the guilt and the condemning power of sin is the same Christ who rose victoriously from the dead. And so you see, we share, by virtue of our union with Christ, we share, we partake, not only in the benefits of Christ's death, wherein we're freed from the law, but we also partake in the benefits of his resurrection back to life. 
And if it is through our union with the resurrected Christ, it is through that union that we are now enabled to live to God. And that is so important for us to understand. Um, And I think we cannot begin to live for God while we're living uh, servilely under the law as a means of putting ourselves right with God. Uh, listen to one very helpful commentator, and he's a Lutheran, but he makes a good point here. He said, only by being crucified with Christ does one die to the law. It is the one avenue of escape. Otherwise, the law has us by the throat and will destroy us. And he is right. You see, as long as I am under the law, I sense its condemning power and it has me by the throat. Well then, let us sum up our consideration of this passage. What then is the Christian's relationship to the law? On one hand, we're to delight in it, we're to love it, we're to walk according to the moral precepts, the moral commandments on the one hand. It is, as the Westminster Confession describes, it is a rule of life informing us of the will of God, our duty, and it directs and binds us to walk accordingly. That's what the Westminster Confession says. But on the other hand, we view the law in the light of Christ, and in Him we no longer view it as a ladder by which we climb our way to heaven by human effort, and somehow manage to push ourselves into the good favor of God. No, we now see the law in the light uh, of which God meant for us to see it, not as a ladder, ladder by which to climb, and this is very good here, but as a mirror to reveal the eternal moral character of God and ourselves as sinners when we're compared to that standard. Now, we all know what a mirror is. For many of us, well, I'll speak for myself, a mirror is not the most complimentary thing that we have in our home. It isn't for me. It might be for my wife, but it isn't for me. I mean, I get up in the morning and I look or... I don't know if I really look. I may glance in the mirror, and it tells me in a manner of speaking what needs to be done. When I look at the mirror, (laughs) it tells me what needs to be done, but it also tells me what can't be done. (laughs) But it does tell me what needs to be done when I look in the mirror. And if you're... Anything like me, you sense something of that. Now, don't get me wrong. It does tell me some things I need to do and some things that I can do. For instance, it tells me I need to wash. I need to shave. I need to brush that mop on the top of my head, and so to speak. The mirror can tell you that, but you do not wash your face in the mirror. The mirror can tell you what's wrong, but the mirror cannot fix the wrong. You see what I'm saying? Uh, The mirror can tell you that you need to go to the basin or to the sink. The mirror may send you to the shower in order to bathe. The mirror can point you to something else like water to cleanse yourself or to wash yourself. But the mirror can never do that for you. 
That's the law. And in the light of Christ, we see that the great function of the law is in this sense. It points us to Christ. As the mirror sends you to the shower, the law sends you to Christ. The law beckons you to Christ. The law sends you to the Lord Jesus Christ. It points us to him. Christ is the end of the law. He is the very goal and purpose of the law, the telos of the law. We love it. We're the delight in it. And by the grace of God, we seek to keep its moral precepts. But we understand it in its truest light, not as a ladder by which we pull ourselves up to heaven. And we could do so if we just exert a little more effort but we use it as a mirror to behold ourselves and to be pointed back to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the great stratagems of the devil, one of his great devices, is to turn us inward upon ourselves and to leave us there. I was talking, I will not call this person's name, but I was talking to a dear member in our church just this past week who was really having difficulty in this error, turned inward upon oneself. And if we do that, then the devil will seek to absorb us with ourselves. He will abuse us, if he can, with the law. He'll abuse us with a mirror of God's perfect righteousness to keep us simply standing before that mirror so that we lose all sense of our purpose and function, which is to send us to the Savior for forgiveness and cleansing. And in this sense, Paul tells us that the law is our tutor. It is our schoolmaster to send us to Christ. And this is what he's going to show us as well. Later on in chapter 3 and verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor, Paul will argue, to bring us to Christ, to point us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. It is this majestic and glorious Savior who lives within us. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, he says, but Christ lives in me. And it is his living in me, which in turn enables me to live for God, not perfectly, but purposefully. Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, Paul says, and who gave himself for me. So as long as we're living under the mistaken notion or imagination that we can climb that ladder high enough to place ourselves into the good favor of God, we will not so much as take a baby step in our progress of living for God. And that, that's a point that needs to be driven home. Because if that's the only way by which we view God's law, it will only serve to condemn us. It will crush us beneath the total weight of the perfection that it demands and under which we cannot stand. And Peter was implying this by his behavior. Dear people, the Lord Jesus Christ was the only perfect law keeper. 
And only he has kept God's holy law fully, completely, and perfectly for all who are united to him by faith. As the hymn writer Augustus Toplady puts it, My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Afterwards, look at hymn number 463. Makes it clear. Now let me ask all of us tonight a very basic question. In fact, it's so basic that at sometimes it seems beyond the matter of asking. But where or in what is your confidence placed this evening? Are you looking into yourself to find something that might lead you to think, yes, there's something that I've done. Or there's something that I have been. There is something I have thought. There is something that I feel. There's something there that will make me acceptable before God. Or are you someone who is saying this evening, I've looked inside of myself and I have seen nothing. I have seen nothing that makes me acceptable in the presence of God. The mirror shows me that there is nothing within me to make myself acceptable to God. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. That, you see, is the great, it is the ultimate practical consideration of what Paul is writing here in this passage. And in the context of that question, it was the matter of circumcision. The devil had <clears throat> the devil had his fingerprints all over this controversy that emerged among the Galatians. You were running well, Paul says, and now you're looking in when you should be looking up and out of yourself. And in the context of that question, it's important to bear in mind that reality. Don't look in yourself. Look up outside of yourself to Christ. And dear people, I think this is why we must contend earnestly for the truth of the gospel. It is so important uh, that we understand that. Now, as I bring this to an end tonight, I think there's an illustration in Pilgrim's Progress, and this is what I want to leave you with. Pilgrim's Progress, just in picture form as you read it, gives us these clear examples. And uh, I, I, there's this wonderful exchange and story of Pilgrim's Progress between Christian and hopeful. You know, they went through uh, vanity, the uh, vanity, city of vanity or something like that, I forget, Vanity Fair or something like that. And anyway... Faithful, he lost his life while they were in Vanity Fair. And, and afterwards, there's this wonderful exchange which transpires between Christian and hopeful. You may recall how hopeful, having been mute, moved by the testimony of <clears throat> Christian and faithful in the town of Vanity Fair, uh, that hopeful, he had been converted by the testimony of those two. And Christian and hopeful, they had this following exchange. And Christian asked him how Christ had been revealed to him. 
And this is how Hopeful responds. Listen carefully. This is how Bunyan puts it in this work. Hopeful says, I did not see him with my bodily eyes, but with the eyes of my understanding. Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19. And thus it was one day I was very sad. I think sadder than any time in my life. And this sadness was through a fresh sight of the greatness and the vileness of my sins. And I was then looking for nothing but hell and the everlasting damnation of my soul. Suddenly, as I thought, I saw the Lord Jesus look down from heaven upon me and saying, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. But I replied, Lord, I am a very great sinner. And he answered, My grace is sufficient for thee. Then I said, But Lord, what is believing? And then I saw from that saying, He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. That believing and coming was all one, and that he came, that is, ran out in his heart and affections after salvation by Christ. And it says, He did, that is hopeful, believed in Christ. John six thirty five. Then the water stood in my eyes, and I asked further, But Lord, may such a great sinner as I indeed be accepted of thee and be saved of thee? And I heard him say, Him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Then I said, But how, Lord, must I consider of thee in my coming to thee, that my faith may be placed aright in thee? Then he said, Christ Jesus. <laughs> I like this. He doesn't point him to his faith. He points him to Christ. He says, Christ Jesus came into world, to the world to save sinners. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He is mediator between God and us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. From all which I gathered that I must look for righteousness in his person. And for satisfaction for my sins by his blood. That what he did in obedience to his father's law. And in submitting to the penalty thereof. Was not for himself. But for him that will accept it for his salvation. And be thankful. May God help us to see. From the youngest among us to the oldest, that all of our hope is bound up in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is our only confidence. Can you imagine coming before God in the last day and saying, Oh Lord, I think you can find something in me that you'll like. I think you'll find something in me that you'll accept. 
I once did something. I once said something. I once believed something. I once preached something. I hope that none of us ever think or feel any such thoughts that we might be prepared to say to God in the last day, my Savior's obedience in blood hide all my transgressions from view. May God help us to guard our hearts against all fears and doubts and there to contend earnestly for the truth as it is in Jesus. Let us pray.